Our scripture today is from the book of Luke. I'm reading from the clear word, chapter 7 and verse 11. Which, pardon me? I still didn't hear you, I'm sorry. Oh, 1 through 11. Oh, I thought it was, I misread. Okay, forgive me. After Jesus finished talking to the people, he decided to go to Capernaum. A Roman soldier's personal slave who was highly respected and like one of the family had become terribly sick and was at the point of death. When the officer heard about Jesus' power to heal, he asked some of his religious leaders to ask him to come to the house and heal his servant. They went to Jesus and said, there's a Roman officer who needs your help and he deserves all the help you can give him. He loves our people and the Jewish nation. He even built a synagogue for us right here in town so that Jesus followed the Jewish leaders towards the officer's house. While they were going, making little progress because of the crowd, the officer himself came to see Jesus and said, Lord, I wish you wouldn't trouble yourself to come to my house because I don't feel worthy to have you come. That's the reason I didn't come to see you but asked others to speak for me. All you have to do is to command the sickness to go away and it will and my servant will be healed. I know how the chain of command works because I'm an officer and have soldiers under me who recognize my authority. All I have to do is to command a soldier to go, and he goes, and another to come, and he comes. To the <clears throat> and to command my trusted servant to do this or that, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at the kind of faith this Roman officer had in him. He turned to the people and said, I tell you, I haven't found anyone with this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. When Jesus said to the Roman officer, because you have believed in me, it will be done. The officer returned home, and when he got there, he found his servant well. And I apologize. Okay, keep going. Okay, I apologize that I got... Thank you. The next day, Jesus made his way to the little city of Nain, accompanied by his followers and many other people. As he approached the city gate, a funeral procession was on its way out. A widow's only son had died and a large crowd made up of relatives, friends, and sympathetic townspeople was following the men carrying the body. 
Jesus stepped aside to let them by. And as the weeping mother passed, his heart went out in compassion to her. As she looked up to him, he said, don't cry. And then he stopped the procession, walked over to the litter on which the body lay, touched it and said, young man, I am telling you, get up. The young man opened his eyes. He sat up and began to talk. Then Jesus presented him to his mother. The people were dumb with amazement. When they found their tongues, they praised God, saying, A great prophet has come to visit us. God has not forgotten his people. The news of what Jesus had done spread throughout Judea and all the regions of Israel. I love to hear him read, just reads with so much expression. So Nain is that cozy community that's carved out of a rocky slope of Mount Moray, overlooking the Valley of Jezreel. When we went to Galilee three years ago, we were on Mount Moray in the springtime. And we went to the site of Naboth's vineyard. Do you remember Naboth? King Ahab liked his vineyard so much that he wanted to buy it, and when he couldn't buy it, he killed Naboth so he could have it. The valley below, when we were at Naboth's vineyard, was a carpet of new wheat, the greenest green. Wildflowers bloomed everywhere, and the trees were blooming, much as it is here right now. Nain is just around the corner from Naboth's vineyard. Luke 7, verse 12, introduces us to a nameless widow. I wish she had a name, but she doesn't. And it's spring in this story, but in the valley of this widow's heart, it is the dead of winter. Twice, death has reached its icy fingers into her family and stolen her loved ones from her. First it was her husband and now her son, her only son. In a patriarchal society, women did not inherit property from their husbands. So they could not support themselves by working outside the home. Widowhood placed them in a position of vulnerable poverty and they were dependent upon the charity of their sons. But a widow that didn't have a son was in the worst predicament of all. Added to this, the Israelites believed that if you died before you were old, it was a punishment for your sin. So this woman would walk around feeling reproach, judged by others that both her husband and her son somehow had been sinners. And she's forced to face an uncertain future. Now she faces it alone. 
She has no one to hold her hand, no one to steady her steps as she leads the funeral procession, no one to comfort her when she cries herself to sleep at night, no one to wake up to in the morning, no one to fix breakfast for, no one to share the holy days, the common days, or any days at all, no one to grow old with, and no one to look after her in the autumn days of her life. Mark and I have been going around town asking people what our community needs most. What are the unmet needs in our community? And more than one person has mentioned that our community is full of widows and widowers, and they are lonely. Some are attached to churches, and the churches try to meet their needs. But many are not attached to churches, and they moved here with their spouse to retire, and they left their long-term friends maybe from wherever they had worked. And when their spouse dies, they don't have work to go to. They're left isolated and lonely. So we've been praying about ways that our church could better serve the lonely who are in our own midst, and there are many of you, and the lonely that live in our neighborhoods, the ones that are also suffering and struggling with loneliness. This widow has lost everyone she loved, and so in a passionate grief, she rubbed ashes all over her face. What an interesting Thing that they did, tradition. And then she ripped her outer cloak until it hung in tatters around her. Then she set about the final tasks of loving her son. In Judaism, the next of kin would do the preparation for burial. And so all too soon, the preparations are complete and the time for his final journey down the hill to the cemetery. The hair and the nails of the deceased had been cut. The body has been washed, anointed, wrapped in the best cloth she could find. The head of the deceased was left unwrapped, face up on the stretcher, and the hands of the deceased were folded over his chest. The mother and the paid mourners lead the procession. The open wicker buyer follows the way to the cemetery, out of town, carried by, and I thought this was interesting, barefoot friends and family. So the pallbearers had to take their shoes off. Trailing in its wake come the other relatives and close friends. And in small towns, all of the townspeople are expected to stop what they're doing and follow in this procession. In small villages, the entire community comes to join the mournful parade. Accompanying the procession are the melancholy calls of flutes and the tinkling of small cymbals and the chanted laments of at least one wailing woman. If you had more means, you hired more wailing women. And in all this pageantry, there is no comfort for the grieving mother. She's bereft now of her only child. 
Just the time that the crowd is leaving Nain, another crowd is entering. One crowd is following a coffin, the other is following Christ. One is filled with sorrow and despair, the other with excitement and hope. And they meet there at the gate of Nain, life and death. In respect for the dead, the crowd following Jesus pulls back, allowing the funeral procession to thread its way through Nain's gate. Jesus is leading a large group of disciples that trails far, far down the road. He stands at the head of the line, just a few feet away from the corpse and the weeping mother as as he's waiting to provide space for them to pass by. Through her tears, she does not see Jesus' kind smile or the concern in his eyes. It's awkward for those disciples at first. Just a day or two before in Capernaum, they witnessed Jesus healing the centurion's servant. And he healed that day remotely with only a word. Jesus had to, just had to speak and someone could be well. Now they're in Nain, and it's a beautiful spring day here. They're with Jesus. They have time off from their fishing gig, and they wonder, what are we going to see today? They're joyful and exuberant, and it's difficult to dial back that happy mood to now be appropriately solemn and quiet. And they try to put on long faces and hushed tones. But it's hard to change moods that quickly. So they only were able to express a detached sorrow for this strange woman's grief. Their expressions show that they do feel sorry for her, but they are not really sorrowful. In fact, one whispered to his friend, so another woman, another widow loses her son. Tough to be her. Too bad we weren't here yesterday. Jesus could have healed your kid. They didn't really see her. But Jesus sees her. Notice, my dear friends, that Jesus sees you when you cry. His heart went out to her. It says that he had compassion on her. It says he puts your tears in a bottle. He writes them in his book. Every tear you cry, he writes in his book. When Jesus sees the tears flowing from this widow's heart, every thought that had preoccupied him on this 38-mile journey from Capernaum goes away. The whole of his attention is now focused on this shattered woman. All he knows is that she will be desperate All he feels is her pain, and all he sees is her tears. Those tears are the flames that melt his heart. Ellen White tells us that it's our very helplessness, our neediness, that commends us to our Savior when we have no way to fix our situation, ourself. And so Jesus offers two words to this woman. Don't cry. 
Now, these are not words out of a textbook on pastoral care. One sermon I read this week said, never ever use these words to a grieving person unless, like Jesus, you have the power to raise their loved one from the dead. Okay? You are not to use these words, don't cry. Only Jesus could do that. But, and they seep from his heart bursting with compassion. He feels and he knows and he understands her pain. And she senses it in the tone of his voice. She glimpses it now as she looks in his eyes. He is not insensitive. This stranger knows what she's going through better than anyone else. And she knows somehow that he will help her. When he tells her not to weep, he's actually saying, trust me. He knows what he's going to do, and he is in control. And then Jesus does something shocking. He extends his hand to touch the cold, lifeless hand of the dead boy. He isn't concerned about protocol or etiquette, and the fact that he doesn't know this family, or even more, the fact that touching the dead would render him unclean in the eyes of rabbinic law. He did not dread that greatest of all defilements, contact with the dead. And as he reaches out to touch that boy, the procession lurches to a stop. Jesus speaks directly to the corpse. Young man, I say to you, get up. Now what kind of a crazy man is this that would speak to the dead, especially to give that command? Two words to the mother, eight words to the boy, but that is enough. At Jesus' command, the young man sits up and talks. What he says is not recorded. We are not told it, but he must have seen his mother's ashed face and the tear streaks down those ash stains on her face. Certainly the first words to escape his now resurrected lips would be, Mom, this miracle is a display of our Savior's power. And it did not happen in a secluded home, but before a very large crowd, everyone that lived in Nain, and a large crowd that had followed Jesus from Galilee. This was not an intimate small event, but one with hundreds of witnesses. But there is something even more incredible about this auspicious meeting at the town gate. The mother had not asked for a miracle. She had not asked for anything. She had not thrown herself at the Savior's feet and begged for the life of her son. She hadn't demonstrated great faith. She hadn't demonstrated any faith. As far as we know, she didn't know who Jesus was. He was just standing there. And that's what's so incredible. This is a miracle that's done without any human prompting, without any pre-calculated lesson to be taught to the disciples, without the power, the thought of the power that this would show the skeptics. 
This miracle is the spontaneous expression of the heart of Jesus. He could not stand to not get involved. He could not see that kind of pain and not do something. This is the first time the scripture records that he robs the tomb, but it will not be the last. Praise God for that. It is a miracle drawn from the well of divine compassion. The tiny town of Nain is just a short detour off the main road between Capernaum and Jerusalem. And indeed, that's when we went to Naboth's vineyard, we were going from Capernaum to Jerusalem. And Jesus, you know, didn't have to go far out of his way to be there. But still, it is a slight detour because you have to climb the hill. And it was a hill that didn't necessarily need to be climbed. But Jesus knew the Old Testament very well. He'd grown up in Nazareth, which was only five and a half miles to the north. So perhaps he and Mary had walked past Nain a few times. And around the corner from Nain is a little town called Shunem. Anyone heard of Shunem? What happened in Shunem? Do you remember? Okay. Mary taught Jesus that Shunem was the place where a dead boy came to life, and he knew that. Now here is something you wouldn't piece together. Shunem and Nain are like villages that are just... You could walk them easily in about 10 minutes from place to place. Maybe that's why he wanted to climb the stairs to Nain and stop there. When he collided with the dead son and the grieving mother, that Bible story flashed back in his brain. He knew exactly what to do because he remembered the Old Testament story. Twice before, boys had been raised from the dead and returned to their mothers. Once by Elijah in 2 Kings 17, and once by Elisha in 2 Kings 4. In all three stories, the resurrected boys are given back to their mothers. So that's the feature that, in all cases, ties these stories together. In 1 Kings 17, God told Elijah to go outside of Israel when there was a famine and no food. He told her, told Elijah specifically to go to the city of Zarephath, which was in Philistine, the Philistine lands. It wasn't in, in Israel. And he said that there would be a widow that would give him food. You remember the story? God miraculously gives this woman oil and flour. When she decides to make some for him, then there was still more for her and for her son. And All the whole time that there was that drought and no rain and no food, there was always enough flour and enough oil. That'd be a good story to preach on. I like that one. But then the boy in that family gets ill and dies. Elijah takes the boy from the widow's arms and carries him to the upper room and lays him on his bed. This is what the Bible says. He stretches himself on the boy three times. 
And he cries to the Lord, O Lord, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy lived. Elijah picked up the boy and carried him down the stairs and gave him to his mother. Now in 2 Kings 4, we have Elisha, who was friends of this couple that lived in Shunem. And you remember they offered to build him a room on the top of their house where he could always stay. And because they were so kind to him one day, Elisha said, is there anything you need? What can I pray for for you? And they, they said, well, we're, we're blessed. And he says, you don't have a son. How about if I pray for a son for you? But that boy was out working with his father in the fields, had a sunstroke probably, and the father brings him limp, unconscious already to the mother, and the boy dies. The mother, the woman of Shunem, takes that boy up the stairs and puts the boy in Elisha's bed. And then she gets on her donkey, and I find it really interesting, she did not send her husband, and she did not send a, a servant. She was going herself to get Elisha. And she goes down across the Valley of Jezreel to Mount Carmel, which is on the other side. And when he arrives, he finds that prayed for boy on his bed. And Elisha gets on the bed and he lays on the boy. Where did he learn to do that? From Elijah. That's what Elijah had done. And then he gets up and he walks back and forth in the room. And then he got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times. Now that's really specific. He sneezed seven times. And the boy comes back to life. Notice it took Elijah three tries in prayers. Elisha two tries in prayers. But how long did it take Jesus? When he said, young man, I say to you, get up. It was immediate. The Bible tells us that the voice of Jesus raises the dead. Is that good news? That's amazing news. And the book of John tells us, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus was better at raising the dead than those greatest of great prophets from the Old Testament. Imagine being in the crowd that day and connecting the, the dots. What? Here on this hill? Oh, again? They figured out and remembered the story of the boy in Shunem. And Luke 7, verses 16 and 17, records their response. They were all filled with awe, and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. So here's my question. Why this woman? Why this young man? Why did Jesus take the time to climb the stairs? 
I have a Hebrew word that I want to help you understand this morning. The Hebrew word is hesed. And if you have a King James Bible, it will always read loving kindness. If you have an NIV Bible, it will always read unfailing love. And the word hesed is a covenantal love. It's a love that makes a promise and keeps it. It is an unconditional love. It's unwaveringly loyal. It's persistent. It never gives up. And it's undeserved. And it engages the heart of God to a human being. Okay, so it was definitely Hesed love that Jesus was feeling toward the woman at Nain that day. Hesed is used 250 times in the Old Testament. And it's used in such a powerful manner that some theologians say it is the most important word not only of the Old Testament, but the whole Bible, because this is what God does to us and for us. Hesed is that forever covenantal, always unconditional, unwaveringly loyal, kind love of inseparable bonding, of divine family, of eternal attachment. It is a love that will not let go. Persistent, undeserved, dependable, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, tells us about Hesed love. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. Well, that's good news, isn't it? When you don't go to a mega church. For you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved, and that's the word Hesed, you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. And then it goes on. Um, it says he loves you, if you go to the next slide, he loves you because he loves you. The Lord, it's circular reasoning. He says, I'm attached to you because I'm attached to you. It's not because you're beautiful. It's not because you're kind. It's not because you're wise. It's not even because you pray so hard. I just love you. You were chosen because the God we serve has Hesed love towards you. The Hesed love of the Lord chooses you because he wants to be with you. So it's not about you being perfect. It's about you being willing to hang out with him and be with him. You were chosen because God simply and forever chooses to attach himself to you. He chooses to love you just because that's what he does. And... Included in this Hesed love is the promise that it's never going away, that will always be there for you, especially when you need it most. And I don't know about you, but Mark and I talk a lot about the fact that we're getting old, and one of these days, one of us is going to die. Do you have those conversations at your house? Maybe it happened, it's only happened since we moved to Squim. But he'll say, you know, one of us is going to be left alone, and that's going to just be so sad, and it's going to be so hard. And many of us are not looking forward to that, to being left alone. It's our greatest fear that we'll be abandoned and unloved. But 
the wonderful news is the Hesed love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And his love will always be there for you. There's the promise, Hebrews 13, 5. So life isn't about arriving at some kind of place of superior spirituality. Life is just attaching yourself to God and letting him attach himself to you. Deeply attached love. Even when I don't feel it, I am held by my father. His everlasting arms are under me, and he meets my needs. This is not a genie in the bottle. This is not wish fulfillment. This is the greatest, most faithful being in the universe, making a promise and keeping it. Psalm 135 tells us this. If God chooses to attach himself to your soul, it will provide salvation to you. And I think there's a slide for that if you want to pull it up. There you go. And it says that though the mountains are shaken and the hills be removed, his unfailing love, the Hesed love, for you will not be shaken or my covenant of peace removed. So, even if the big earthquake comes, God is still going to love you, and he's still going to be there, the big one. Hesed is who God is. He is abounding in Hesed, it says. And maybe go to the next slide. There's the idea that the Hesed unfailing love brings us salvation. Next slide as well. There we go. This is when Moses asked Yahweh if he could take a look at his face and what Yahweh said. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, I, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, and then the next slide, slow to anger, abounding in love, hesed love, abounding in it. That means there's more than you need. And faithfulness, maintaining love, hesed love again, to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So that's just really great news. That when he describes himself, he says, I am the Lord and I am overflowing, abounding in Hesed love. So Max Lucado puts it this way. You may have heard this before. I think it's really cute. He is fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you're the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring, and man, he's doing that, and sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart. Face it, friend. He's crazy about you. Do you see God as being crazy about you? You should. That that's, he is so attached to you, it is not reasonable 
but he is, and he describes himself as being that attached. So this story of the widow illustrates salvation. It says the whole world was dead in sin. The whole world was dead in sin. And then, just as the widow's son was dead, it can come to life. And that's because of the power of God. Being dead, we can't even ask for help. But God has compassion on us and sent Jesus to bring us and make us alive again with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, he makes us alive in him. We don't have the chance to earn our salvation when we're already dead in sin. It's all gift. All we can do is accept it and praise God for it and live our lives to do his will. David closes the 23rd Psalm with a mighty crescendo of faith. Do you all know how the 23rd Psalm ends? Surely goodness and mercy, and mercy, by the way, is hesed, shall follow me all the days of my life. Okay, are you having a day of your life today? So on this day of your life, goodness and mercy is following you. And then, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now let's look at this verse closely. That verse and connects yesterday and today, the fact that mercy and goodness have been following you, to the fact that it's going to last forever. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God says, I've got this great life planned for you, and you're always going to find goodness and mercy. But that's not the end. I've got something even better. You get to live with me forever. The word dwell that you find there in the very last um, stanza of it says, means to reside or settle down and to be at home with. He loves us so much, he says, come live with me. I don't know many humans that would say that, especially if you see how messy my junk room is. Okay, the Hebrew word translated follow, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, means to chase after or pursue. So this is not a leisurely follow. This is if you run fast, I can run just as fast kind of follow. The Hebrew word radoff means to chase after, to keep going. So this means that goodness and mercy stay hot on our heels. Wherever we go, even if we try to get out of it, goodness and mercy is going to be there. The divine love and grace of our shepherd chase us, radaff us all the way to heaven's gate and into the arms of our waiting father. We are pursued by hesed. We are chased by grace. We are not merely followed. We are being actively pursued and loved. We are being saved by his never-failing, never-ending, unconditional hesed loving kindness. So I have one story to illustrate this. One hot summer day in South Florida, a little boy decided to go for a swim. Okay, what happens when boys swim in South Florida? There's going to be an alligator. 
So this kid was in such a hurry to dive into the cool water, he ran out the back door, he's shedding his clothes as he goes, and he flew into the water, not checking first for the alligator. His mother was in the house watching him run across the yard, watching him jump into the water, and she saw the alligator. So she runs out as fast as she can, yelling to her son as loudly as she could, get out, get out. Hearing her voice, the little boy became alarmed. He made a U-turn and he swam toward the shore. But of course, if it's a good story, it's gonna be too late. Just as the little boy reached the shore and his mother, the alligator reached him. From the dock, the mother grabbed her little boy by the arms and the alligator snatched his legs. And that began an incredible tug-of-war between the two. The alligator was stronger than the mother, but the mother loved this boy more than the alligator did. A farmer happened to drive by and he heard her screams and he raced from his truck and he took aim and shot the alligator. Okay, got a rescuer, that's great. Remarkably, the little boy was taken to the hospital and after weeks and weeks, he survived. But his legs were extremely scarred by the vicious attack of the animal. And on his arms were great deep scratches where his mother had dug her fingernails into his flesh to hold on. The newspaper reporter who interviewed the boy after the trauma asked if he would show his scars. The boy was proud of his scars. He lifted his pant legs and he said with obvious pride, look, see my scars? Aren't they ugly? Aren't they horrible? But you have to see my arms too. I have great scars on my arms. They're because my mother would not let go. Our God's hesed love to us is love that does not let go. He will always hold us tight, and he will never let us go. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to expect hesed. I want you to expect loving kindness, to look for it because it is pursuing you, it's following you, and it's everywhere you go, there is hesed love. God's love is after you. It's going to knock at your door. It's going to rise on your horizon. You can expect hope and mercy and miracles and a glass of cold water when you need one. Expect nothing from God but hesed love, that loving kindness, that unfailing love. And that's what you will find all the days of your life. And Jesus promises, he says, every person the Father gives to me eventually comes running to me. And once that person is with me, I hold on and I do not let go. And all the days of your life, all the days of your life, he's holding on. When your life is over, he'll still be holding you. He'll be inviting you to come live in his Father's house with him forever.